Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're looking at the election in Canada, which takes place on September the 20th. Justin Trudeau could have waited until 2024 until holding a vote. But instead, Canada's prime ministers called an early election, saying he needs a new mandate to deal with the pandemic and the economic recovery. However, with just a few days to go before polling opens, Mr Trudeau's Liberal Party and the opposition Conservatives led by Erin O'Toole are neck and neck. To discuss the campaign and the broader challenges facing Canada, I'm joined this week by Daryl Bricker, author of several books on Canadian politics and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. So, is Canada on the brink of a major political shift? This election has not been easy going for Justin Trudeau. He's faced anger on the campaign trail from anti-vaccine protesters, with one rally even being called off. Anti-vaccine protesters yelling and swearing pushing against the police officers protecting Justin Trudeau. Economic issues and the pandemic have dominated the election, and climate change has also featured prominently. Here's Jagmeet Singh, leader of the left-wing New Democratic Party, speaking during the party leaders' televised debate. Let's talk about the cost. The cost of inaction is an entire town of Lytton being wiped out by a climate forest fire. The cost of inaction is forest fires and flooding and heat waves that mean Canadians lose their lives. The election's taken place against the backdrop of a crisis in relations between Canada and China. The biggest flashpoint's the fate of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavel, two Canadian men who've been detained and indicted under a state secrets law in China. Their arrest is widely regarded as an act of retaliation against Canada for its arrest of Huawei Telecom's executive Meng Wanzhou, following an extradition request from the US. During the televised debate, Erin O'Toole accused Trudeau of a failure of leadership in foreign affairs. Canada's voice has been absent, Mr Trudeau. We have not worked with our allies on Huawei. We have not stood up for the 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong. We've not fought for the two Michaels and put pressure on the communist regime We have not stood up for human rights. Sir, you did not show up for a vote declaring a genocide towards the Uyghur people. You didn't show up. If you want to get the Michaels home, you do not simply lob tomatoes across the Pacific. That is what Mr. Harper tried for a number of years and didn't get anywhere. You need to engage in a sophisticated way with our allies every step of the way. Another big issue in Canada this year has been a scandal about the treatment of Indigenous Canadians after the discovery of over a 1,000 unmarked graves of children who died at boarding schools where they had been sent after being forcibly separated from their families. The schools were opened for most of the 20th century. During the debate, Trudeau defended his government's effort to deal with the issue 
and achieve national reconciliation. Uh, we ensured that we brought the truth forward and then we worked with indigenous leaders groups, indigenous women's groups to co-develop the action plan that we are now fully funding so we can get justice for the victims, healing for the families and put an end to this ongoing national tragedy. For all Trudeau's efforts, however, his Liberal Party has trailed the opposition Conservatives for much of the campaign. So when I got Daryl Bricker on the line from Canada, I asked him if Justin Trudeau had miscalculated by calling an early election. At the start of the election, we asked people whether or not uh, we should be having an election in the pandemic, and 56% said no. That number's risen by 12 points through the course of the election, which is something I've never seen happen before. So people have, are really upset the fact that we're having this election and uh, are taking it out on the prime minister. Because they feel it's inappropriate in a pandemic. And I saw a bit of the debates and I noticed that the other leaders were really going at Trudeau saying this was a, I think one of them called it an egotistical decision to call the election. Correct. And so it's not just that it was, uh, you know, technically a bad idea because we're in a, a pandemic, but it also underscores some aspects of the character that Trudeau has developed over time. And this election has really turned into a, a referendum on his character. And that is that, you know, this kind of insouciant person who's a very politically manipulative and doesn't really tell the truth. And his personality with a significant number of Canadians has really transformed since 2015 when he could do no wrong. And what makes you strong makes you weak. And uh, that personality was underscored by the way that this election was called. And as a result of that, he's, he's paying the consequences. And yet, although I think the polls, and we're talking about a week before the actual vote, look neck and neck. I mean, I gather that because of Canada has a constituency system, the Liberals could still end up with more seats than the others and enough to form a government, even if they lose the popular vote. Is that correct? Well, they did that in 2019 as well. But the, the purpose of this election was supposed to be to correct that. So the prime minister called the election because he saw an opportunity to form a majority, a stable majority. He called it at a time in which he figured people wouldn't be paying attention. He picked the shortest possible election campaign that you could have, so offered no opportunity to recover if he stumbled. And he believed had a big enough lead that he created a situation in which the opposition couldn't catch up. And he misread every one of those uh, conditions that I just uh, just described. So um, what, where we've ended up, though, is a situation in which the opposition parties, uh, particularly the Conservative Party, has a, actually an equally good chance of defeating them. That wasn't the case the last time. So let's talk about the Conservatives. I mean, I guess the world has got used to the face of Justin Trudeau um, over the last few years as the face of Canada. Tell us about the leader of the opposition, Erin O'Toole. Well, he, in some ways, he's kind of the anti-Trudeau. He's... Uh, He's not the matinee idol um, that Justin Trudeau is. He's not a pontificator the way that Justin Trudeau is. He's, I think, uh, seen as somebody who's more kind of serious and uh, reserved, but also he's able to carry all of those attributes that the Conservative Party normally carries in Canada that relate to kind of seriousness and competence. So he's got a good profile for being a Conservative leader. Has he set the house afire as far as Canadians are concerned? No. But he's got himself into a situation where he's at least competitive with the prime minister. Depending on the poll you look, there are a couple of points apart or there's maybe you know a handful of points apart. Whereas at the start of this election campaign, it was night and day. And uh, Canada's had to kind of observe the Trump phenomenon from south of the border. 
has there been any kind of influence of Trump-style politics into Canada? I mean, I gather that one of the phenomenons of this election has been the rise of the People's Party, which sounds a bit like as a populist Trump-style party. Well, I think, you know, you could interpret it that way. But the truth is, the People's Party tends to be a compilation of none of the above. I mean, so the Green Party, by the way, has a similar type of profile. So to say that these are kind of ideological right-wing people who are similar to what we saw in the United States and Trump, I think is getting ahead of the data. I don't think that there's, there's certainly elements of that. And you're seeing it as the most vocal elements. And what are they running on? What are their issues? Basically, uh, vaccine mandates, anything that's opposed to elites in Ottawa. You know, just like Donald Trump ran against uh, what they saw as the establishment of the right and the establishment of the left, that's what Maxime Bernier's party is about. And Maxime Bernier's, uh, the leader of the party, is really more incidental than he is instrumental, I would say, in, in terms of this party. It's just, it, it's given that element of Canadian politics a place to organize. And there has been a kind of undercurrent of, uh, rather visible current, of pretty unruly protest against Trudeau. I think people chucked gravel at him at, at one rally, other, another one had to be called off. How has that affected the tone of the campaign? Is that, and is that new for Canada? No, it's not new for Canada. We've had, you know, people throwing milkshakes and, you know, other things. I mean, similar to what you have in the UK. But the contrast between the reception for Justin Trudeau back in 2015, well, as I said before, we could do no wrong and how certain elements of the population react to him today is startling. Um, it's, it's a very different kind of situation. But also, you know, the Liberal Party has been taking advantage of that because what they want to do is they want to show that there is this Trumpian type of element in Canadian politics and that it's probably aligned with Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, which is his claim. Although when you look at the you know, television coverage of this, you see a lot of purple signs for the People's Party. But he's trying to create a bit of a contrast in order to activate what he needs right now, which is some fear about him not winning the election campaign and what could come next. So he's using this as, a, as an example of the type of people that uh, Canadian government could be open to if, uh, if Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives win. And for people outside Canada, just give us a sense of the regional politics of the election. Is it the case that basically the heartland, the, the middle of the country, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, etc., is more conservative and the big urban areas, Toronto, Vancouver, more liberal? Is, is that uh, the, a way of seeing it? Uh, sort of. That's sort of correct. The better way to look at it is probably cities versus suburbs versus rural small towns. And it's a similar pattern across the country. So the Conservatives tend to have smaller rural communities as their voters. The Liberal Party tends to have the cities, along with the New Democrats, which are our Socialist Party here in Canada. And then the, the suburbs are up for grabs. So the suburbs, particularly around the city of Toronto and in, in Vancouver, around the city of Vancouver and British Columbia, really do decide the outcome of the election. And that's a new thing. That's something that, uh, that didn't really exist in the previous century when all elections were about sweeping the province of Quebec and winning enough of Ontario that you would win the national election. But the Canadian population has grown dramatically and has particularly grown dramatically in Western Canada and in the suburbs of our major cities. And so Western Canada is more important in terms of our national elections and the suburbs are critical. And it's a, a much more diverse population, isn't it? I mean, there's been big immigration from, from Asia in particular. It's striking that you, you mentioned the New Democrats, that they're led by a, a Sikh, Jagmeet Singh, 
and so on. I mean, how has that debate over immigration, diversity, is that just a, unlike in the United States, just a kind of accepted thing? Or is it an issue of political contention? Yeah, very different from the United States or the United Kingdom. Canadians, particularly Canadians outside of the province of Quebec, because they don't really have a strong culture, and particularly when you compare it to the United States, change, because that culture is basically an immigrant culture outside of the province of Quebec, is pretty well and easily accommodated. So, you know, I tell my my friends who live in London, and I'm in London a lot, that, you know, you think London's a diverse city. Well, you know, London's about 42 or 43% foreign-born population. Well, Toronto's well over 50. It's an incredibly diverse population of the major cities in North America, the most demographically in terms of ethnocultural, racial, however you want to define it, much different background, particularly suburban Toronto. So um, immigration is something that is not contentious outside of the province of Quebec. In the province of Quebec, it's more contentious because cultural change is more difficult to absorb, particularly given that they're really trying desperately to make sure that they maintain French-Canadian culture and in particular the French language. And uh, over the last few months, there's been a very agonized kind of reckoning with the treatment of Indigenous people and particularly the discovery of graves of children of of Indigenous people who'd been removed from their homes and taken to be educated in uh, schools that were meant to assimilate them. And that has led to horrified reaction. But as far as I can work out, it isn't playing a particularly big role in the election. Yeah, it's difficult to find how it is landing on the various political parties. So, you know, if you're a conservative, the general branding of being a conservative is you're kind of less tolerant of these sorts of things. The Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau is seen as being obviously you know, they really have embraced reconciliation with the Indigenous community, but also the the Liberal Party is the government. So it's like, okay, well, I know the Conservatives on the sensitivity, reconciliation, um, you know, uh, uh, identity politics part of this probably wouldn't be my, if you were somebody who was really interested in this, my first choice, but I'm really not happy either with the government's record over the last six years in terms of dealing with Indigenous communities. And this this thing was particularly horrifying. So it's a bit confused as to who you would reward or punish for this. And just outside of the election context for the moment, do you think this is a kind of moment of introspection for Canadian society, which I think is, you know, generally had a pretty positive view of itself, that there is a darker past that needs to be kind of somehow assimilated into the national story. Yeah, and and it's also the Black Lives Matter movement has had a profound effect on Canada too. And one of the things that we've seen in Canadian public opinion is that there's been a fairly big change and consensus built around the fact that uh, Canada's got a, a racism problem that we need to deal with. But it's hard to see how much of that is just nodding in agreement and how much is really people are prepared to profoundly change things in order to accommodate that particular position. We haven't had that kind of uh, confrontation in Canada. I mean, statues and things like that are, you know, one thing, but meeting some of the more ambitious demands of the Indigenous community in terms of land ownership, resources, control of territory and that kind of thing, if Canadians actually, that's non-Indigenous Canadians actually 
are confronted with that, I think that the reaction would be a bit more, I would say, confrontational. Yeah, because their economic interests would be directly threatened, obviously, if, if you start talking about land ownership. Um, another thing that's quite striking about this election, certainly as an outsider, is climate change seems to be quite high up the salience issue. I think a tricky one for Canada, I would have thought, though, is a very kind of resource-dependent economy. Yeah, it is. And Canada is basically a pretty progressive country. I mean, 60% of the population you could describe as progressive, 40% you could describe as being more conservative. So climate change is uh, an issue that's important to people, particularly who are progressive voters, so they care about it. But once you get beyond the idea that this is important, something needs to be done, government needs to be active, we need to be doing something as individuals to deal with this, when you start getting into the actual cost of paying for it or the requirements that we're putting on people to change their lifestyles, that's when all of this stuff tends to get a lot more contentious. And by the way, that's not a, just a Canadian thing, that's a global thing. Um, so yes, symbolically, the reason that climate change becomes big in election campaigns or became big in the previous election campaign was because the Conservatives had such a, a dodgy position on it. This time around, that's one of the things that Aaron O'Toole has worked really hard to change. Although his party is not seen as particularly climate friendly, Aaron O'Toole has done a fair amount to kind of make it less egregious to the Canadian public and give the Liberals a smaller target to shoot at. And by the way, what's also happened in this election campaign is that other issues have bypassed it as being more important. Now, I think Canada's probably not exceptional in democratic countries in that foreign policy doesn't usually feature very much in elections. But again, as an outsider, it strikes me that Canada's relationship with China is kind of in a crisis with the arrest of the two Michaels essentially being kept in detention and that did come up in the debates. How are the various leaders dealing with that? And how do the voters seem to think of it? Well, you could, if you saw the part of the debate where um, Justin Trudeau responded to attacks by, I think, all three leaders, uh, all, all the other four leaders on the, on the stage, it was like, you guys don't get how hard this is, was basically his, uh, his response. And we have to work with our allies. You know. But he's got a six-year record of having to deal with these kinds of things, whereas the other leaders don't. So he's open now to questions about how he's dealt with China and the fact that we have those two Canadian citizens, the two Michaels, as we're calling them, under arrest in, in China is uh, emblematic of the fact that the government's policy on China, as far as the Canadian population is concerned, doesn't really seem to be working that well. How could we not be able to get these guys out? And uh, the prime minister, it's on his watch, so he wears it. But also you can see that the Conservatives know that their constituency is a bit more bellicose when it comes to foreign policy, a little bit more militaristic when it comes to foreign policy, a little less about international institutions and that kind of thing, more of a kind of strong stand-up for Canada type of position. So Aaron O'Toole was trying to use that as a bit of a wedge against the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister also had the, uh, the misfortune of also calling the election the day that Kabul fell. And uh, just like the United Kingdom where Canada left lives, many casualties in, uh, in Afghanistan. It all seemed to be going boombastic in a very, in a very uh, unpredicted way. It was another foreign policy issue that landed on his desk that, that he had to deal with. And the, I think the general perception was that the Canadian government was scrambling and probably behind other governments in terms of being able to deal with it. And the prime minister faced a lot of questions 
during particularly in the first week of the campaign when this was leading the news around most of the world, faced a lot of questions at the start of the campaign about this, which was one more reason he had a hard time sprinting out of the blocks ahead of the opposition parties. So finally, I mean, it looks pretty neck and neck going into the election. But afterwards, do you think the world will be dealing with a different sort of Canada if a tool on the Conservatives form the government Will they be a different kind of country that the rest of the world's dealing with? Or indeed, if it's another Trudeau administration, do you think he'll have a sort of different emphasis in his next term? Well, you know, the prime minister went through a, a, you know, a near-death experience back in 2019 and really didn't change very much. If this is another near-death experience and he, he wins again, but maybe a, a smaller minority this time around, he seems pretty determined. I think that, uh, you know, the core of Justin Trudeau is the one that you see. Uh, the core of the Liberal administration is the one that you see. Well, I think the core of Justin Trudeau is he's a genuinely progressive leader. I mean, he's obviously had to modify certain things as a result of the country that he's dealing with and his ability to build constituencies around the country and the speed at which the country can move But on some of these things. But he's genuinely a progressive leader. You know, he's really committed to climate change. He really does believe in it. He is committed to things that relate to things like indigenous reconciliation. That's not going to go away. You know, he is somebody who is going to be front and center in the government. I mean, the only identity his government has is basically him, his personality. That's still going to be the case. So I think that, you know, even if he is defeated, these core elements of who Justin Trudeau is will continue on. And we know that because he was almost defeated in 2019 and nothing really changed. I expect, though, that he'll be under a, a fair amount of pressure from his party to start making some changes. His overall control of the Liberal Party may weaken as a result of this. Not that his leadership will be challenged. There's not anybody who's really well organized to be able to do that at this stage of the game. But I think that there are probably some of the people around the prime minister and some of the people who have been core uh, to his election strategy and to particularly the, the second administration will be under a certain amount of challenge from uh, the Liberal Party in general. If Aaron O'Toole wins, uh, I think what you would see different between Aaron O'Toole and, and Justin Trudeau is the showboaty part of the whole thing, where Justin Trudeau, you know, was the taking his goodness and light from the 2015 campaign to the world, where he became an international celebrity and people really kind of reacted to, in some ways, what was the caricature of Justin Trudeau, you know, his celebrity status. I guess that's basically what I'm saying. That would definitely change under, <laughs> under Aaron O'Toole. But uh, I, I don't think in terms of substance that you would see a huge amount of change. That was Daryl Bricker, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you can join me again next week. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.